welcome to our series on exploring your masculinity. This is audio tape number one, Getting a Grip. Stand straight and tall. Excuse me, are we a little teapot? Untuck your shirt. Just one side. Oh. You hate this, don't you? Well, look at it. You want to be neat. You want to be tidy. Adjust yourself. Not there. The package, sissy man. Grab them. Hmm. You're in a bar room. Okay. Repeat after me. Yo. Yo. Hot damn. Hot damn. What a fabulous window treatment. What a fabulous that window treatment. That was a trick. Ah! Yeah. Hello and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast where we go moment by moment through Adele's smash hit single, When We Were Young, and discuss it in depth for hours upon hours. You guys, we do this every week. I wish I had more of a social life outside of this. I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to have a life-changing secret about him revealed during an Academy Awards telecast. Yes, you are. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Becky. I'm the podcast host most likely to need a heterosexual male code red. (laughs) Also accurate. (laughs) And I'm Seth Pearson, that podcast host most likely to use that sarcastic, contemptuous tone that means you know everything because you're a man, and I know nothing because I'm a woman. (laughs) You're not a woman, Seth. Oh, you bastard. So in this episode, in honor of coming out day on October 11th, we thought we would look back at the gay 90s, but not the 1890s, because that would be crazy. We can't go back and see the vaudeville. I'm sure they were also known as the gay 90s, but yeah, we're talking for some in particular, we're talking about the gay 90s of the 20th century. Yes. And uh, this really had some of the era's most defining coming out moments in uh, 1996 and 97. So we will be looking back at how queer culture was depicted in the mainstream then and talk about how it may or may not be different today. So this includes The Birdcage, the biggest gay box office hit of all time, released in 1996, in which Robin Williams and Nathan Lane get shoved back into the closet to meet their son's fiancé's conservative parents. This also includes Ellen's massive coming out episode from 1997 and In-N-Out, a hit comedy starring Kevin Kline as an outed high school teacher, released almost exactly 20 years ago in the fall of 1997. I kind of feel like this is a turning point for gay depictions in just like Mm -hmm. mainstream culture. I feel like these years kind of mark that, but we'll we'll get into that as we discuss these fine specimens of (laughs) gaydom. Chris, you can call them hot. (laughs) Hot specimens. We got hot specimens for you today. (laughs) You guys, in the gay community, we refer to each other as specimens. See, it has men in it. Learning so much. It'll just keep on going throughout this episode, I'm sure. (laughs) So since we have a lot to cover, and I'm sure we will be amply covering our personal lives as we discuss our history with these things, uh, we're just going to jump right into the birdcage. Not literally. (laughs) Let us out! We're in a birdcage! You guys, we're trapped in a birdcage. It's the power of audio. (laughs) So the birdcage was released March 8th, 1996. Its budget was $31 million. It opened to $18.3 million and a worldwide total gross of $185.3 million. People liked their birdcage. 
Well, I mean, there was an all-star cast of Robin Williams, Nathan Lane, Calista Flockhart. This was before Ally McBeal, right? Okay, yeah. so I have a definitive okay. thing to say about uh, that. But later. like Mike Nichols, you know, from The Graduate, who's afraid mm-hmm. of Virginia Woolf, Broadway plays. Like he is a an acclaimed director of stage and screen. So you were already working with a lot of A plus talent here. And let's specifically say that, like, Robin Williams was a global box office phenomenon. Yes, definitely. Like, he, his, specifically his I'm movies. I'm sorry, Robin. Whom? I'm not sure. Robin Whomst? Um, no, ro- like, Robin Williams um, had, by this point, had Aladdin, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And Good Morning Vietnam. Like, he had had a lot of box office hits and kind of crossover international hits. I believe Hook came out before this, too, which was a huge hit. Yeah, it was a big bomb. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this was 96. So this was after all those movies and <laughs> Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, notably. yeah. So, oh, absolutely. So the, he was on a he was on a roll. I mean, he's one of the biggest stars in the world. Mm-hmm, for sure. So the critics mostly enjoyed it. It's Metacritic scores at 72. Janet Maslin of the New York Times said, La Caja Fa returns to the screen as the birdcage, an American remake with plenty of new pizzazz. This material still shows its age as it did even in the 1979 French-language version, but it has been tarted up with giddy ingenuity. On the more negative end of the spectrum was the San Francisco Chronicle, which called it a glossy miscalculation. At least it's glossy. (laughs) True. (laughs) If you gotta miscalculate it, at least do it glossily. (laughs) Miscalculation is one of my favorite drag queens. So just to catch you guys up on where gay entertainment was in the mainstream, in 1992, Angels in America opened on Broadway, Philadelphia came out in 1993 and won an Oscar for Tom Hanks. The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, came out in 1994. Tu Wong Fu came out in 1995. So we had a lot of drag, a little bit of AIDS. It's <laughs> pretty much all people knew about gay people was that cross-dressing was a thing and that AIDS was Yeah, it like was an like epidemic. this really like heightened campy version of gay life or the really, really tragic version. And there wasn't a lot of in between. So that is where we were coming from. Historically, uh, 1994 was when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was implemented, and 1996 was the Defense of Mar- Marriage Act. So politically, we were still like very much going through <laughs> a lot of discrimination. And both parties were going along with it. I was going to tape Seth's mouth shut for this <laughs> part. It's important to point out that Bill Clinton signed both the Defense of Marriage Act and Don't Ask, Don't Tell into law. He did indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so, adjusted for inflation, this movie has made $250 million. Whoa! That is insane. For that's a insane. gay uh, comedy? That's even more than I thought. Uh, yeah, that's... A gay comedy of errors. Yeah. Because it's pretty much a farce. Oh, for sure. Um, And it's it takes place mostly in a house and, and, a, and a stage. <laughs> and that's pretty much it. So I think even if, let's just say it's not a gay movie, like if it was just some other you know farcical movie, it's amazing that it made that much money. Yeah, yes. that's almost the craziest part about it is not the gay aspect, that, but the fact that it is almost like a stage play. It is the number one movie to take place entirely inside a house. As well. <laughs> Seriously? No, I don't inside know if that's a, true, but... A house slash dinner theater. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's very improbable that something like that could have anywhere near that level of success. I wonder if people were starved for something like this, though, and that's, it was kind of um, an anomaly because there weren't comedies like this that involved gay people and seen in a very positive light, and I wonder if people, it was um, unique, and that's why people were drawn to it. Also, it was a very good movie. 
um, had star power behind it and it just great word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is the, the number one gay movie of all time, but it's only the number three cross-dressing movie of all time <laughs> because uh, Mrs. Doubtfire and Tootsie are... Oh, wow. I was about to ask him, like, huh? But yeah. So Robin Williams, two of the three top. Yeah, although he was not the cross-dresser in... It's fair. He he left that duty. I think he He was was the artistic director. Mm -hmm. He was actually initially up for, I think, the Nathan Lane role and then wanted to do the other role, actually. Mm. That's interesting. You know what? I'm just going to bring this up now. How big a deal was it at the time that Robin Williams was playing a a gay man in a movie? An A-list celebrity playing a gay person. Like, I wonder when Tom Hanks did it in Philadelphia also, if there was some sort of talk like, oh, he's playing a gay man. I think it was more in that, cause just because he was playing someone with AIDS and it was more of a dramatic role. I think that Tu Wong Fu had already come out and that had like Patrick Swayze and Wesley Snipes I in guess it, that's right? true. Yeah. And so it was, just, I feel like... And was that a hit? I think it was, it was yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. like not as big of a hit as this by okay. any means, but it was a popular movie and I think that that was at the time how mainstream audiences were comfortable seeing gay men was basically dressed as women and like in this outrageous way and knowing that it's okay they're actually straight underneath all that Mm -hmm. so don't worry about it like you don't actually have to think about the fact that these people really exist it was all Mm -hmm. it was very performative and I think this movie is kind of like that too like you don't see a lot of intimacy between the Robin Williams and Nathan Lane in this movie it's all pretty showy Mm mm-hmm Birdcage was based on La Cage Fall, which is a French uh, comedy that made $20 million back in 1979 and is still the number 10 foreign film of all time. Oh, wow. It was also nominated for three Oscars, including Best Director, opposite Francis Ford Coppola for Apocalypse Now, <laughs> and it won a Golden Globe. It's also a Broadway musical now. And it was actually a stage play at some point before for The Birdcage as well. I can't remember if it was a stage play before it was La Caja Fall or it was a stage play after the French movie, but before. (laughs) (laughs) You guys, there's a lot of mystery around this and we're not here to solve everything. (laughs) People really like this story is basically the point of this. (laughs) People really many forms. So do you guys have a history with this movie? Did you see it when it came out? And I kind of want to know why you saw it. (laughs) I'm trying to think of when I first saw this movie. I'm pretty sure I first saw it in high school at some point. Um, It wasn't one of the movies I saw with Chelsea. It wasn't a movie that was taped onto VHS tape at my house. And I definitely saw it and fell in love with it in college. I came to it hearing that it was a, a gay comedy specifically. And it was the first time in my life when... I kind of started looking for movies that had specifically gay characters. Yeah, so I came at it specifically from like a, this is a movie I know is a quote-unquote gay movie. What drew me to it as well was that it was a Mike Nichols movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was a big fan of his, like from The Graduate especially, because that was one of the movies on our required list before I went to film school. Um, And that was just a period when I was discovering a whole lot of cinema all at once, like in my after my senior year of high school. Oh like yes, before. I had that list as well. Exactly, exactly. hundred movies that we were all supposed to watch before we started film school. And so I was taking in a lot of like really legit cinema 
um, in a very brief period of time. And so, like, The Graduate was one of those, and that totally blew my mind. Um, so, it was really cool to hear that there was, like, a movie by this guy who'd been directing really well-known movies for, like, 30 or 40 years by that point. And were you drawn to other gay movies or because this one was much more visible than I think a lot of movies and this one was much more mainstream. So other gay movies tended to be like independent and like actually often by gay filmmakers. But were you drawn to those as well or was this not really? It was still a very like my search for these things was still very much kind of mainstream, even though I used like I used the Internet in a lot of ways. Like I was a very early adopter of that, but I didn't really connect to gay culture on the internet, you know, so uh, really the two big touchstones for me um, as far as gay stories were The Birdcage and the show Queer as Folk, which I started watching when it first came on Showtime. My taste in cinema and my ta- my interest in gay storytelling and gay movies was still very mainstream oriented at the time. I don't remember seeing this movie for the first time. I think it was one of those stolen pay-per-view movies <laughs> as so many of them are <laughs> that I just kind of like saw because it was on stolen pay-per-view and I remember liking it but I don't remember <laughs> much more than that um a few years ago 3 or 4 years ago it was like on HBO Go or something my husband was like oh I've never seen it so I was like oh let's just put it on it's been literally like decades or however mm-hmm. long um and we both were like cracking up and I remembered feeling like I hadn't actually laughed out loud at a movie in a really long time. Legitimate, like, guffaw. Like, <laughs> Legitimate guffaw. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, we, we have to announce we're changing the name of the show to Legitimate Guffaw <laughs> to really expand our market share. Much better than all the illegitimate guffaws that we've had on the show. <laughs> illegitimate guffaw is better, though. <laughs> Anyway, we were both dying laughing. It was just so funny, and I didn't remember liking it that much. I think maybe you just have to be a little bit older, because I was 13 in Mm. 1996. By the way, I don't think you can call it stolen pay-per-view. I think you have to call it steal purview or don't (laughs) pay-per-view. My thought on that was, can we please make a theme song for stolen pay-per-view? If I make a theme song for it, can we please like play that each time that you reference it? Because it's really not going to go away. No, no. (laughs) I saw so many movies. (laughs) Guys, I'm in the entertainment industry today because I was left alone a lot and I was a latchkey kid and I had no one to watch over me except stolen (laughs) pay-per-view. You were a PPV latchkey kid. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. What about you, Chris? (laughs) I think that I am probably the only person who was only interested in seeing The Birdcage because Callista Flockhart was in it. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was a big Ally McBeal fan. So you didn't see it when it came out then because Ally McBeal had not come out. No, I definitely saw it after the show had come out and only because I really liked Callista Flockhart. (laughs) That was my only interest in You are this movie. the only person. Yeah. So at the time, I just don't think like this movie appealed to me very much. I knew of it. I knew it was a big hit. So I, I watched it on video and I, I think I was mildly amused, but I didn't really love it at the time. Like it wasn't a movie I really remembered anything about. And I think I, I sort of mentioned during the My Best Friend's Wedding episode that the Rupert Everett character in that movie was it. One of the early depictions of a gay person that was a little bit between dying of AIDS and a woman. (laughs) (laughs) 
but like this was kind of a positive depiction of a gay yeah, man. Yeah, this was again kind of like a a very feminized version of it that like no, nothing in it really spoke to me. So I don't remember having any particular like feelings toward it. Like it was just a comedy that I saw. I watched it. I was like, yeah, that was fine. Didn't love it. Didn't hate it. And that was my entire history with this movie until I watched it again for the podcast. So I don't know about you guys, but watching this movie now, I loved it. I thought it was so good. And the most recent time I watched it, I watched it again with my husband and I watched it with my dad. And what I thought was really remarkable is that all of us were laughing together. And I feel like there's not that many movies that my husband, me, and my dad would all like. And we were all busting out laughing. And I just was kind of blown away by how well staged it was. Just the way that Mike Nichols directs the actors within the frame. It feels like I'm watching a play, but like in a good way. There's so much physical comedy in the movie that you kind of need to see everybody's like full bodies and how they interact with each other in the space. I think that the acting is so funny and still, even after all these years, like feels so fresh and made me laugh so hard. And the only thing that I really don't like about this movie is the son. (laughs) And Mm. I hate him. And I understand that the premise of the movie hinges on him being an asshole. (laughs) And it bothers me, but like the the movie wouldn't exist because the son has to be an asshole. So it just. I feel like he's more of an asshole now than he was intended to be in 1996. Like I think in 1996, that was kind of supposed to be a slightly reasonable view. And now it's just like, oh, you're a dick. Oh, that's why this movie like couldn't be made today because the whole plot hinges on they are, you know, going along with this uh, plot to pretend they're not who they are. And if like, let's say the birdcage was made today and the son was like, I need you to not be gay or, you know, get out of the house (laughs) and I'll bring in this person that I haven't seen in like a million years to to be my real mom like today the people would be like fuck you yeah <laughs> like, that, no it would way. be a snapchat story now. <laughs> like like no way so anyway that just in general that's my complaint about the movie but i understand there's no movie without that and otherwise i love it well and i totally understand that critique of it and that kind of seeing it that way now kind of in our general reactions i loved this movie the first time i saw it i thought it was absolutely hilarious I not only still think it's hilarious, I see so much more depth in it and so much more just character, so much better, such better characterization than even many portrayals of non-straight people in movies now. Um, I totally do think The Sun is a shit. Um, <laughs> but it, but I also think that if Mike Nichols were alive now and he died a couple years ago, mm-hmm. yeah. um, I think Mike Nichols would have made a very different movie if he had made it now. And what strikes me is that this movie really does come out at a pivotal period where representations of gay men in pop culture started to become a mainstream idea. Um, and it really struck me rewatching it this time around how nuanced this was, um, despite how com- kind of comically over the top these characters are, are um, especially Nathan Lane's character, um, as much as they are kind of very typical queens in that way, they're layered in a way and the actors portray them in a way that I think gives it much more depth um, than it might otherwise have had and also gives the characters more depth than they might have had if it were made now. 
I enjoyed the movie overall. It was fine. I think there's a lot of really kind of bad things about it. Nathan Lane is just like a broad caricature. He's basically a child. He's He is a broad in the sense of like being a brassy dame of a queen. Yeah. <laughs> he's a character and he's very broad and he's very stereotypically, you know, feminine. He refers to himself as a woman. Mm-hmm. I feel like Robin Williams' character plays a good balance to Nathan Lane and Hank Azaria, who's also kind of like flaming in a similar way to Nathan Lane. Robin Williams isn't, you know, very gay in the way he that does do Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. He does, which is hilarious. He's a theater guy. Yeah, I, but like, I, but he's I like not as too, um, he's not as flaming. And I feel like we have the very broad character, and we have somebody who's not very broad. They respect each other, and they have this very close relationship. And I feel like that kind of tones Nathan Lane down in some scenes and just provides a good balance what did he do he blew a bubble with his gum while i was singing he can't do that while i'm singing celsius look this may be a drag show but it still has to be a good drag show if possible a great drag show yes and just because you're 22 and hung doesn't mean you're let me do this albert fine you're the director thank you this is a complex number full of mythic themes the woman who is singing invented you you are her fantasy And suddenly, you, the fantasy, see her, your inventor, and she becomes your fantasy. I don't think I get it. Try more gum. Albert. I hear you. But let's start with the premise that when you see this stunning, smoldering creature, she transcends your desire to chew, she electrifies you. Something starts in your pelvis and works its way towards your heart, where it becomes heart slash pelvis. Yes? Coming. What about me? What do I do? Do I just stand here like an object? No. You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do fussy, fussy, fussy. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Or Twyla, Twyla, Twyla. Or Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd. Or Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. I just have a lot of problems with just like the setup of this movie. I want to just say really quick, I know people that are like Nathan Lane in this movie, and, like, this is a believable gay couple to me. Like, there's definitely people that act this way, and that's... Hold on. Hold on. What? Because they use the words that they act this way. Mm. I think you are characterizing a level of femme behavior and femme attitude as inauthentic. Kind of, because his character is so theatrical and sees himself as a performer, and I feel like he's acting as a performer pretty much the entire movie. Like, we're not really seeing behind that. I I don't think so. Like, I think that's who he is all the time. Like, that's just who he is. He is a diva. That is the point. Like, But that alone is because you identify with this sort of theatrical persona and it's not it's not really that genuine i'm thinking back to and again this is getting very specific about plot moments like i'm thinking of the the scene at the bus stop Mm -hmm. where they just kind of literally sit robin williams and nathan lane sit and talk about their relationship and it's gotten to a point in this story where Nathan Lane was kind of convinced that Robin Williams was either seeing another guy or like wasn't in fully in love with him anymore. They just have this very long scene, just the two of them sitting on a bus bench, just talking about what it is about Nathan Lane's character that Robin Williams' character loves. 
I love that scene. I love that scene so much. And like this time around watching it, it's so much more real as silly as these characters are than most other gay representations are. And I like, not to interrupt you, Seth, I like that in this movie, Nathan Lane is a real person with a relationship and feelings and wants. I disagree. I feel like Nathan Lane in this movie is the problem that they need to solve. Is He's too gay and... Like, Robin Williams can pass as straight, and that's not supposed to be a problem. And yet, like, Nathan Lane is just like, he's the problem because he's that's too not, gay. That's not the problem the movie has. That's not the problem that Mike Nichols or the filmmakers or the writers have. That's a problem that the son has and that the son's fiance's family has. And I just, I, I'm sorry, I just have to say that, like, Becky's problem with my best friend's wedding was that the wedding was unrealistic because she was 22. Yeah, but I have that problem with this movie. Okay. But I don't think the movie is making that problem. I think the son in this movie is an asshole who's been dating Callista Flockhart a year. They are 19, 20 years old, still in college. She they've was actually never, 30. They've never met each other's families, and they want to get married. He had never fucked before. Let's be honest. Like, I think the movie is trying to tell us these people are dumb. Yeah, I think that's true. I was going into it this time around very sensitive to things about this movie that don't hold up or that would be considered problematic now. Things that would be criticized now by, again, the kind of... By me. <laughs> well, not just by you, though. Right. Literally, like, but again, by the kind of other parts of voices in our culture who've gotten a kind of mainstream platform now. My main problem with this movie is just, like, the logic of the plot that I don't think makes any sense whatsoever. So, uh-huh. to start, it's a bit of a stretch that anyone would go along with. Like, you're, you're getting married. Like, you guys are going to see each other again. Yeah, I, that's what I kept asking. Like, what's his long-term plan here? It doesn't here? <laughs> make any sense. Like, he even, like, lies about his last name. I'm like, what are you going to, like, not right, use so your Chris, last name? Chris, it's a farce. Both the first time I saw The Birdcage and rewatching it this time, I have such a deep appreciation for Mike Nichols as a storyteller, as a director, as a director of actors. He very methodically, in all of his best movies, really connects with the characters and grounds them and makes sure that the actors ground their performances in, you know, like making the characters sell every plot moment. So I never did get the feeling that I got when watching My Best Friend's Wedding, when Rupert Everett basically only lives to serve Julia Roberts as a character. That's literally what Hank Azaria does in this movie. He's just comic relief. Yes. Yeah, but that's not, the movie's not about him. And the movie's not about Rupert Everett. My Best Friend's Wedding does not resolve in the way that it resolves without Rupert Everett's intervention and help. He moves heaven... He is the deus ex machina of My Best Friend's Wedding. He moves heaven and earth to help Julie Roberts. I can't her. compare Rupert Everett to Hank Azaria this because Hank Azaria has so many funny lines. Yes. And he's like, like, what does he say? Like, the shoes aren't a problem because they make me fall down. <laughs> like, just everything the he says is so with the and funny the and he has off. so much personality, but he's also not the only gay person in this movie. And, and Rupert Everett was. He can be just the side character. He doesn't need more life because there's other you're holding your mouth closed like you're like you're gonna scream at me if you don't <laughs> I just think you guys are being so hypocritical <laughs> I don't think we are no I think we're being perfectly consistent the same things about my best friend's wedding that made it an unsuccessful movie for me make this a successful movie for me it's that the characters sell the plot 
every character has a motivation that they're pursuing, whether that changes the course of the whole movie or not. Like, I feel like each of these characters in the birdcage could survive outside of the plot that's in these three acts. Like, I can't picture Rupert Everett doing anything else except poofing out of thin air and being like, hi, Julia Roberts, need my help? I can't picture Nathan Lane doing anything Are else. Are you kidding? Like, I can. I feel like Are he has a whole kidding? life. You, he is the diva of that theater. Like, this time around watching it, I saw the extent to which he is the caged bird of the bird cage. Because, like, that kind of one confined environment is the kind of scope of his ability to be powerful and to be the queen. Like, this small little kingdom is the only place where... Nathan Lane's character could completely dominate everyone and everything and have the world revolve around him. But the movie wasn't about that. But the movie is entirely about that. That confined space becomes the way and the light to help Gene Hackman escape these people who are coming after him. Let's contextualize the story of this movie a little bit more. The son of Nathan Lane and Robin Williams' character is marrying Callista Flockhart's character. And Callista Flockhart's family uh, is... The the husband is played by Gene Hackman, and he is a right-wing conservative uh, lawmaker Mm -hmm. who is trying to develop a national platform and and celebrity for himself. Coalition for Moral Order. Mm -hmm. Right, one of those kind of right-wing movement leaders who Mm -hmm. gets headlines through demonizing homosexuals, demonizing uh, people who support abortion and are pro-choice. And his dutiful wife is played by the amazing Diane mm-hmm. Weiss. She is wonderful. She is absolutely wonderful. Again, I, the casting of this movie is, I think, perfect. Mm-hmm. Very good casting, yes. I do have to say, I love Hank Azaria, but I think that today they would have cast somebody who's Latino? Yeah, it's <laughs> or Hispanic, definitely or? like a... A little offensive, and I tried not to make too big of a thing of that, but they're definitely, like, he's putting on, like, a funny act. So they're basically making fun of a minority and a gay character at the (laughs) same time. So here's the thing. I laughed so much at that character the first time I saw it. This time around seeing it, I really felt, Chris, the way that you do resoundingly from the first second. I, again, I don't. If this movie were made now, if Mike Nichols were alive now when he were making this, that wouldn't be the same character. No, uh, and but it's also it weird. is a very funny performance. So you have to like really it's give like Hank Azaria props yeah. for the comedic performance. Also, he is so hot. <laughs> it's surprising, isn't it? In the Lucy wig, uh, I'm like Lucy and Ricky. <laughs> either in a wig or out of it, he is so fucking boneable in this movie, and that leapt out to me the first time I saw it, and definitely now. Um, no, but it, again, I, I I think there are many things about this movie uh, that would be told very differently if it were made now, mm-hmm. um, and I do think that his character is appropriative. I mean, there's actually a documentary that's going to come out very soon about his character, Apu. Oh, yeah. On The Simpsons. I I don't think it was done with negative intentions, but I do think it's problematic in a way that is very obvious now and might not have been earlier. Mm -hmm. So in the plot, uh, the son is going to marry Calista Flockhart, Allie McBeal. McBeal, And he is worried that the parents, Allie McBeal's parents, won't like his family. Mr. and Mrs. McBeal. (laughs) So he asked asked his his father, um, he asked Robin Williams, 
I want to have you meet the parents, but you need to act less gay, change your life, like change your home so that it's less gay and your um, common law husband or I mean, they're not married at the time because gay marriage wasn't illegal back then. Uh, but they're basically husband and wife or however. Do, right. I'm sorry to interrupt, but like, do you think Albert is actually like trans? Because he definitely keeps saying no, he's a he's woman. No, he's not. So, uh, so this is the thing that we've gotten close to, but I, I want to make this point explicit. It is difficult to dance around these topics sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like make sure that you're getting them right yeah. like, when you're talking about people. There used to be a lot more blending of the idea of gender nonconformity and sexual orientation trans identity was a lot more automatically associated with being homosexual than it is now. Mm-hmm. It's only in a more recent time that we've been able to separate these concepts from each other. People can be homosexual and not at all be transgender or transsexual. There are also transsexual or transgender people who are not homosexual, like who are heterosexual mm-hmm. and trans. Right. Yeah. So these ideas have only become this distinct very recently so would so you call, i don't okay. think i don't think that albert is it albert albert yeah yeah i don't think that nathan lane's character albert is trans at all but also in the drag world those concepts and the pronouns are always more loosely thrown around because just i want to get things right and like in the movie they call he calls himself a woman at the end of the movie the son says this is my mother referring to well, and in the in the kind of 2017 modern context, someone can be your mother and identify as a man and not have those things be incongruent. Gender itself is seen as a performance now in the modern context. Like that's part of what the gender critique is like around all the pronouns that we use and all of that. That these are performances and we can change what those mean. But in the context in which this movie was made, a lot of drag queens referred to themselves with female pronouns and would, you right. know, respond this is when, to those pronouns. This is when he's not even in, like, character. Like, wearing yeah, the wig the and thing everything. Is, in my experience, a lot of drag queens refer to themselves as she, or pretty much all of them do, in character. But they also have like, their own lives outside of character. And in this movie, there's really no difference. But I've known drag queens who refer to themselves as female when they're outside of drag, and also they don't necessarily identify as females. Okay. But but refer to themselves with those pronouns. I think, the thing is that I think this movie is very effectively non-judgmental of the way that people in these communities and spaces refer to themselves. I also don't think that this movie, and I don't think that Robin Williams' character or Nathan Lane's character or Mike Nichols' direction or any of that are meant to be a universal statement or commentary on how people in the drag world present themselves. It's not meant to be a universal statement of how gay men present themselves. Again, I think it's a lot more nuanced than some of the aspects that now seem problematic would suggest. The plot is that the conservative politician played by Gene Hackman his partner in political shenanigans is caught with a underage black prostitute. Who dies. Yes, I forgot about that. <laughs> and so his wife thinks that a wedding will save this career and a bunch of reporters follow him to Florida 
For what? Like I don't remember exactly, but I just remember it's like, oh, there was a scandal of this guy. I can't let a scandal ruin my chances at running for office or whatever it was. And they think that they kind of just want to avoid scandal. And plus, when she's like, oh, I'm getting married, the fact that she's lying to them saying, oh, he's, you know, this Christian, religious, white, uh, affluent family that's very conservative near where the Bushes live. Mm-hmm. Um, they just think... <laughs> near where Jeb Bush lives. Holy fuck. I know. They just... I think that, that they... They want to remain scandal-free and they're like, oh, our daughter's going to get married to this very conservative guy. It's going to be good for our image. Chris, yeah. what I saw <laughs> Diane Weiss's character is kind of a Robin Wright pen in House of Cards. She is the person who is kind of making the strategic... PR decisions that will advance her husband's career. Like, it's... I found it to be a big stretch. But, like, what is the... They didn't make the daughter get married. Like, they didn't tell her you need to get no, married. But no, but it is, is... I don't... I just don't understand what the plan is. What is the wedding going to be? Like... <laughs> well, I agree with you. husband just not going to have anyone come to the I wedding? agree with you. Okay. I, I think that Calissa Flockhart and the son have no endgame here. <laughs> so why do they go along with it? They don't ask, like, oh, but if we go along with this while meeting your parents, what will happen the next day? I mean, I agree with you. Okay. <laughs> Wait, in what sense? What are you talking about? I, the, I mean, there's... They, he's not going to live a lie the rest of his life. He's going to pretend that his last name is not Jewish. He's going to invite zero people to his wedding. I watched this with my dad, and I was saying the exact same question. I was like, what's their endgame here? Like, they're... Like, he's still going to have these parents. And, yeah. And my dad said, well, then they'll be married. Then they can't, but they then can't the, make their the daughter But scandal will come out anyway. Wait, I feel like y'all are really missing the point that this is a farce. It well, still trying, has to hold up I mean, as I, like, no. being some kind of sense. <laughs> no, it doesn't. That is the point of something being farcical. Do you not understand Look, what the word means? If this movie, if I, if this movie was shit other than this, like plot, like I'd be like, eh, this is a problem I have with it, which is what I had a problem with in my best friend's wedding. I had a lot of problems with no, it. No, but see, Becky, I think that's why Chris is saying this movie is shit. Is the elements that he's complaining about as being bad are the elements of a farce existing? Exactly, and those and are the, the elements <laughs> you complained about in that movie. But the point is the absurdity of it. I mean, this is obviously just a personal opinion, but in that movie, I just felt like if you really like pick it apart, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But at least in general, it's like, okay, she wants to marry him and blah, blah, like, and in this one, it like, it just doesn't make any sense on any level. I want to ask you a question, Chris. Did you think this movie was funny? I found it amusing. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I found it significantly amusing. Backwards compliment ever. (laughs) Okay. I found some things funny. What did you, what, what did you find funny? When it I ended. actually found Gene Hackman very funny and Diane Weist very funny. I liked those characters. Nathan Lane is funny. It was a little bit over the top for me, but... Oh, Nathan, a Nathan Lane performance <laughs> is a bit over the top? But, like, wasn't it... I mean, that's not a surprise, exactly, that, but... That whole scene when Robin Williams is teaching him how to be a man, and, like, he's... I pierced the toast! And he's trying to walk like John Wayne. Like, it, I just feel like it was, like, a master class in, like, physical comedy. And Nathan Lane actually does nail <laughs> the John Wayne walk, and Robin Williams is like, oh, that's actually right. I never knew he walked like that. <laughs> oh, fuck him. Of course you can pass as an uncle. You're a great performer. I'm a great director. Together we can do almost anything. Oh, Amon, really? Absolutely. We've got five hours. All right, first, get your pinky down. It's up again. All right, and your posture. Oh, oh my God, are you crazy? What are you 
doing? Stop screaming. I'm teaching you to act like a man. All right. All right. Now, this is a dinner party. Let's work with food. All right. Spread some mustard on the toast. Don't use the spoon and don't dribble little dots of mustard. No? No. You take your knife and you smear. Men smear. Smear. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Get the goddamn pinky down. All right, make your fingers like iron, all right? Yeah, and stop trembling. Hold the knife boldly in strength. Yes, so that scene in particular, I do remember like being amused at it, and also kind of like, mm, like this is a ch- child. He's acting like a child, a like incompetent human being. Like, he can't even walk. But that is the point: is that it's presenting and, it to mainstream audiences and being like, "Look at this queen." But look I said how this. Funny. But I said this earlier. I don't think this movie is making any kind of generalizing or universalizing statements about these characters. And I watched it this time around, actually, like really worried that this movie would just in my. 2017 goggles turn out to be really truly offensive. I don't see why you think Robin Williams is not different than Nathan Lane. Like they're I mean, completely different. Different. I but... think Robin Williams is portraying like a bear, like a silver daddy. I, again, I think his character is so much more nuanced than most portrayals of gay men are allowed to be. I was actually this time around the most surprised by Robin Williams' performance. I, I think love it. His performance to me, is what is the counterpoint to Nathan Lane's very performative, very theatrical, and literally theatrical, because, again, he's the leader of a theater. I think Robin Williams' character embodies the kind of masculinity that coexists with queerness. And that is a characterization that is not just nuanced for that time, but really nuanced right now. No one gay was involved. Like, the actors are not gay. The director was not gay. The writer is not gay. I just, I don't think that this portrayal, like, this portrayal just feels very stereotypical and not nuanced to me. Do you think Robin Williams is stereotypical? I think his character is pretty interesting. But then when they go along with this, like, absurd plot, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I just, I don't think that that's a logical thing that people would do and I know it's a comedy but I don't think that like in a comedy you have to buy that people would even no matter what their motivations are people would do this and I didn't buy that these characters would do this particularly Robin Williams because he seems smarter than this oh but I totally buy that these characters would do this I buy that these characters in 1996 would do it and that actually made me sad because I think if this movie was made today they wouldn't yeah. But I think back then, I think it's supposed to be a little sad that they do go along with it because they yes. they yeah. accept yes. that their son doesn't approve of their gayness in some way and they still love their son. But I think it's meant to be a little sad that they do. Okay, one of my other big problems with this movie is that there is no ending. <laughs> they just, like the mom walks in and then he's like, oh, let me just, tell you everything anyway like it's not like even found out it's just like i guess the movie's over because okay we need to give her a name christine Baranski. the tremendous christine <laughs> like, tremendous christine the unstoppable <laughs> i love christine Baranski. i'm not okay i have no problem again with at her. least we share this love all of the actors in this movie i'm not great. gonna kick I have you no out problem of here with any of the 
perform well maybe the son <laughs> but, by yeah. the way do you know who that son is i do dan futterman yes he's a pretty acclaimed screenwriter he did capote he wrote Foxcatcher. he was a writer on in treatment um so that's some good things that the son has done <laughs> yeah maybe maybe writing was his calling <laughs> i don't know it's not it's more like the writing of this character which he didn't write no that, yeah that's the problem it's not really his performance the movie makes me laugh so much and the performance is so good that I know it's not a perfect movie and it does kind of just end. Although I like that the credits roll and then you see the wedding and you see like the I changes in the wedding. Like oh that no. Because it just ends on like the straight wedding. Like that's the end of the movie. And so then they all have a bunch of gay people coming to their wedding, which is completely against the whole plot of the movie where the parents didn't want anything like the parents never deal with the fact that they're actually gay they don't actually come on board and be like oh i guess we accept you they just dress in drag and then that's the end of the movie the conflict of this movie is that his career will be ruined if people know that his daughter's marrying a guy with gay parents Uh right yeah and then at the end there's a big gay wedding no but he's not the main character of this movie gene hackman's character is not the main character of this movie on him they all dance around his fucking conservative ideas and then they're never challenged like he doesn't even have a moment where he's like oh i guess maybe i accept you or i understand you it's just you know what i see what you're talking about and i think i have those problems too the movie has just so much goodwill for me and i do like at the end that the conservative people have to be in drag and he's actually has this moment where he seems really like happy and and he's having fun. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the and, thing. And he, I think for me that works where he learns something and takes something and he learns that th- these aren't an other. Maybe he's a not line so, would not, be nice. Not so prejudiced, but like I totally see where you're coming from with that. But see, I think you just as easily would have judged them if they had in a very on the nose line. Well, he's like, well, I guess course, you queers are okay. I people. would like it to be a well-written line or something. You, know? <laughs> you can only have one or the other. <laughs> it has no, to be a bad but line. This movie, no, but, it just does not like. There's no climax to this movie. But what Becky is talking about makes sense, which is that like there is weight to the fact that Gene Hackman has to dress as a woman to get out of the club, has to walk in that space that is the space but that Nathan he's Lane doing owns that to as keep character. hiding the secret that he is with these people so why does he then have a giant wedding with all of these his daughters exactly how has that changed it's not changed but it also is not inherently offensive that it makes no sense i get i totally see where you're coming from i still love everything else about the movie that things like that don't bother me so much but it doesn't make sense right (laughs) I, yeah, Part the, of the point yeah. of a farce is for it to be completely absurd. The plot is almost secondary. Whether or not it resolves into some perfectly like coherent linear story is beside the point of not a farce. Not linear. It literally goes against the entire... The, all the characters are acting in reaction to his conservativeness. That's not resolved. And then at the end, they just don't. Happens off screen. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to know what the end of the story would be. So I watched La Caja Fall. Oh, okay. It is a shot-for-shot remake. Oh, wow. Every joke in this movie is from that movie. Wow. Nothing has been updated. You mean the script is the same? Yeah, I mean, the lines are slightly different, but every, like, set-up punchline is pretty much the same. The only thing that's not really in there is Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's a pretty good scene. <laughs> like they have like the servant in there is a is a young black gay boy. Mm-hmm. So that actually made me respect this movie even less because I had more goodwill toward it before. But I was like, you couldn't update a single thing about this movie twenty years later. It's the exact same depiction of gay life. It's the exact same jokes all of the same kind of stereotypes. And I just, even like the conservative politician is exactly the same, which I was really surprised by because I thought that that was kind of specific to America, but no, because that's Mm. in the, like in the French version, that politician sleeps with an underage black prostitute. Wow. Like it's exactly the same. Well, right wing white shitheads are the same everywhere in the world. Sure. But it just, it made me like this movie a lot less that all of these jokes had already been done, that they weren't even written specifically for this movie. And that like, even the direction of this movie is exactly the same. Like the shots are exactly the same. Like it is literally Hmm. almost exactly the same movie. Wow. I thought you knew. Nope. Didn't know. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, I I thought you were gay too. (laughs) You thought I was gay. Why? Why would you? Why? Why would you think I was gay? Oh, wow! I'm I'm sorry. I I just kind of got that vibe. Vibe? <laughs> like a gay vibe? You know, like like. But like I'm giving off some kind of gay vibration. You know? Gay. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. Yeah. No, I think I think what you're uh, sensing is a very very strong I like men vibe, and it's uh and it's it's throwing you a little bit. So you know you're confused about that. Yes, ice. Ice. Yes. I know. I like ice. Heterosexuals like ice. So we'll now move on from that scintillating conversation to talk about Ellen's The Puppy episode, which aired on April 30th, 1997, and was watched by a pretty large number of 42 million viewers. I was one of them. I was as well. Mm. So we only have 41 million and some to... Math, math, math. Yeah. (laughs) You guys, fill in the math later, honestly. Yeah. The episode also won an Emmy for Best Writing. So it was definitely a big deal. (laughs) Very big deal. Newsweek cover, was it time or time? Time. Where she says, yep, I'm gay on the cover. That came out on April 14th, 1997. So it was a couple weeks before this episode. But even before that, there were like months of rumors that this was going to happen. I think the Time cover was the official coming out. And then Mm -hmm. this episode was like built up to for those weeks in particular, but also for like several months. So I've been watching Ellen's stand up since I was a little girl. I would watch her stand up with my mom. I've always been a huge, huge fan of hers. I watched her sitcom these when it was called These Friends of Mine mm-hmm. <laughs> in its first season. And had a completely different cast. <laughs> um, I kept watching it when it was just Ellen. I even watched The Ellen Show, which uh, when she got canceled on ABC, she went to CBS and there was The Ellen Show. Was her talk show also called The Ellen Show? Or is the, it? It's called The Ellen DeGeneres Show officially. Okay. And I know that because I worked on it. <laughs> yeah. So I actually got to work on The Ellen Show a few years ago for a season. Um... And I just, I love her to pieces. Like, what she, I think she's hilarious. I think that she is even bigger than just a comedian, like, of what she's become because of her bravery Mm -hmm. with this episode, with just her refusal to not be herself and be true to who she is. And just, you know, the Ellen brand of, like, making people feel better about their day and helping people. 
Mm-hmm. I love her. Yeah, so this episode basically generated because the writers felt that they had exhausted the amount of storylines that they could do for <laughs> a character who was not officially gay, but was no longer interested in doing storylines about dating men. So, um, and I think you know this story about why it's called the puppy episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Michael Eisner uh, suggested that she get a puppy. That like That's how out of ideas they were. So they, this is the title of this episode is a kind of a nod to that. Uh, and so I wanted to read just one of the quotes that she um, had in her Time Magazine interview with the infamous cover. Uh, so they asked her, is being gay something that you struggled with? And she said, no, I ignored it because I didn't really know what it was until I was 18 years old. I dated guys, I liked guys, but I knew that I liked girls too. I just didn't know what to do with that. I thought, if I were a guy, I'd go out with her. And then I thought, well, I don't want to be a guy, really. So I went, oh, well, and just went on with my life. So I think that kind of answers some questions. Did she know she was gay all along, and was she just putting this persona on for TV? Or was this something that she was kind of discovering as she was a public figure? And I think it's a little of both, you know? It's it's not necessarily an easy switch, you know, to say, like... And it's also not not a switch from, like, zero to 100. Right. You know, like, the process of coming out is a thing that's, that you navigate in your, in your own life, like, on an individual level with different levels of people, you know, that have different kind of spaces in your life. And f- you treat friends differently. You treat... Uh, and uh, uh, obviously famous people have to treat, like, their careers and their public presentation differently than they would treat their own relationships. But she was one of the first people in my own life who kind of I saw navigating that and trying to chart a course to, like, be herself in the public eye. I have a question for you guys, which is kind of related um, to Ellen in the next movie we're going to be talking about. Um, When was the first time somebody came out to you in person? Like, at what age did that start happening? Because for me, I remember very vividly when I was 13 years old at summer camp, one of my, uh, I had this little core group. (laughs) Boyfriend? No, I had a core group of female friends. Like there was like the four of us and they were all in the bunk next to mine and we were connected by a bathroom. And so I remember I went over there to go meet up with them one day um, and they were all huddled on this bunk and they all looked very serious. And I was just like, oh, did something happen? Like, oh my God, <laughs> what did I miss? Because I don't live in this bunk with you. Um, and they, I forget how it happened, but they basically told me like, Anna just said that she's bisexual. And it wasn't like, they weren't like afraid of her or judging her. Like they were like, it was almost like, wow, this is serious. We're talking about like, like sexual feelings. And, you know, like we were very accepting, but it was just like, wow, this is like a moment. Mm. <laughs> and I just, rem- I can still like mm. picture that, um, did like, she then jump in and say, yep, I'm gay? <laughs> no, she is gay now and married. Uh-huh. Um, but, like, I just remember the enormity of somebody realizing that they are, I mean, she said she was bi, but, like, realizing that they are not straight and realizing, wow, this is a really big deal. Um, and I was very grateful, I think grateful looking back on it, that this friend that I met that summer, like, trusted me with that information. 
So the first person that I can remember ever coming out in any way, shape, or form um, was a girl who I went to elementary school with. She was a goth kid, and, and at some point she came out as bisexual. We were in the same year together, and I think that was in probably sixth grade, seventh at the latest. Wow, sixth grade. Yeah, like 11. Wow. Yeah. And how old were you? Oh, me? I yeah. was 13. Okay. So my answer to this question <laughs> is nobody. <laughs> what? I honestly don't think that I've ever had a moment where someone came out to me. Wow. Chris, I'm gay. Well, that's a first. And I'm shocked. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but I accept you for who you are. Oh my uh, god, I was so worried. <laughs> this whole time I really thought you did not accept me for who I was. <laughs> well, I mean, there are other things about you that I don't accept, but the gay thing is pretty easy. <laughs> oh, thank God. Thank God. Oh yeah, we don't accept you for other things. <laughs> oh. We're fine that we you're like gay. We'd like you to go back in the closet for all of the other things that you are, but being gay oh, is just no. <laughs> So no one in high school... No, there were people that were gay, but I didn't know them very well. And I feel like whenever I heard that they were gay, it was just kind of like a rumor that spread. Like it wasn't really anything that I like actually heard them have to say this or I even really saw them afterwards. So there were friends of mine in high school that ended up being gay, but I didn't find out about that until we weren't usually friends anymore. Mm -hmm. So... Literally, I can't re- think of a single time when any- anyone has ever, like, sat me down <laughs> and said that they were gay at any point in my life. I always just kind of, like, picked it up through osmosis. And it- a lot of these times, it was not a shocking revelation that this person was gay. And it was, I feel like, something that, like, you know, but you don't know. Because at the time, you don't necessarily have the context to even understand what that means. But then when you hear, oh, that person's gay, it's like, well, they did really like Janet Jackson and <laughs> to dance, and so I guess that kind of fits. Wait, so, like, no one came out to you in high school at all? No. No, like, teachers or anything? Either? Teachers? No, so, like, no, in... Well, in- that was the other thing I was going to mention, is that I did have it, because uh, we're watching in and out I did have a gay English teacher in 7th grade and 10th grade, the same teacher, but I don't think I knew that he was gay, and it was kind of the same thing, where it was, like, it was not shocking to then find that out and I don't remember if I realized that at some point in high school or later I mean it's kind of common knowledge now like people have seen him out but at the time that just didn't occur to me like I knew I liked him and he was very encouraging of my creativity uh, when I was in seventh grade but that aspect of it like his personal life just didn't really enter my mind so yeah, it wasn't shocking when I realized that, but it, there was also not a moment when I was like, oh, I suddenly I understand this. It was. I feel like it was kind of, with all of these cases, it was sort of a general awakening to it where there wasn't ever one moment where I was like shocked that someone was gay. It was just kind of like I figured it out piece by piece. I think what's interesting about Ellen in this episode is that she was, you know, a well-liked sitcom star and comedian before she came out, before she was known to be a lesbian, um, or before it was rumored that she was a lesbian. And that I think that her coming out is almost like everybody who watched her show or knew of her had that experience of having somebody come out to them and seeing how hard that is and how much struggle there is with that. And and I, I just think that her 
that episode has is probably so much bigger than people even know that to give people either gay people out there that courage that they can come out and people will still accept them or that straight people now know a gay person even though it's somebody they've never met because it's Ellen on TV but they still like know them yeah I think that this episode is really like seismically important to pop culture the birdcage (laughs) is still a very kind of a removed depiction of gay life where it's like these people are clearly very different than you they're comical figures from Miami Mm -hmm. and this was someone that people didn't like immediately like weren't introduced to as this like flaming Mm -hmm. you know like drag queen or something like yeah she's not like butch no she's just a person she was relatable and and she was like literally welcomed into people's living rooms for years before she said that she was gay and then people had to grapple with the fact like oh I guess I do know a gay person even though she wasn't like their actual friend but it it was a lot more, I think it was a lot more like the um, the situation that people have when someone comes out to them where you assume that this person is straight because most people are and that's just like the default position, especially back then. And then they tell you this thing and you're like, oh, I guess I have to deal with that now and, and make sure that I feel okay with it. And mm-hmm. I think that the way that that mimicked just the process of coming out to a friend, but in this kind of national way was really important and made a lot of people go through that when they probably weren't going through that in their own life because there probably weren't as many people coming out to them. I remember watching a lot of Ellen's sitcom as it aired, but I distinctly remember no longer watching it when these aired. Oh, really? Um, So I don't remember if I had ever seen these all the way through. These definitely aired long, long before I came out. So I kind of identified generally with her having come out. And like, I will definitely say that that was one of the first celebrity comings out that I kind of saw and noticed in pop culture. Um, But I hadn't specifically connected with these episodes for any reason. Hmm. Um, But watching them, I think it's... They're they're surprisingly effective. The writing is really good. Um, and it addresses a lot of the kind of aspects of coming out that are tricky and uncertain and laced with judgment and self-doubt. And um, yeah, I mean, I think there are certainly it, we we live in a culture now where there are a ton of coming out stories. It's like we're personally I'm fucking done with them <laughs> like yeah. for a lifetime or more. Um <laughs> But this was not just a prominent one. I think it was a pretty thoughtful one. Um, And yeah, like watching these, I really, I already had a ton of respect for her, but um, I really, this like really kind of elevated her to, in my mind, watching these episodes. I think it's important to note that her coming out was a really big deal, Mm -hmm. but it, her show was canceled very soon after. Yeah, well, this episode, like, advertisers pulled out of this episode. Some major brands pulled out. Um, the writers got hate mail. Like, it was a really big deal for her to do this. I mean, it's it's easy to kind of look back on it now and be like, yeah, that was brave, but not, like, really realize the stakes. But they were really huge. And the fact that the network even let her do this. And the first draft of this episode was actually rejected for not going far enough because they were playing a little bit too coy with it. And 
ABC was basically like, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this and make it, like, mm-hmm. a thing. And they made it an hour-long episode, and it was star-studded. Like, it was an event, and they did it, I think, in the best possible way that they could with stars like Oprah, you know, who, like, people feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And, like, they did kind of have to, like... Handhold. Handhold a little bit, I think, for people to come along with this. And I just think it's really brilliant that it's not like there's one coming out moment in this episode, which I really appreciate. Like, there's that big moment at the airport where she mm-hmm. says it into the microphone. Which is amazing. It's so funny. It's hilarious. But there's this series of revelations throughout the episode. First is that... She meets the Laura Dern character and is, like, staunchly denying that she would be Mm -hmm. gay in kind of the most obvious way that she is because she's (laughs) protesting too much. Which is also amazing physical comedy by Ellen. Like, the ice, heterosexuals like ice. (laughs) Yeah, it's really good. But then the two of those characters have such chemistry with each other. And it's not chemistry based on them both being lesbians and being out about their sexuality and being overtly about their sexuality. It's about their connection as two human beings. Absolutely. And again, I thought it was just a really nuanced way of doing something like that on mainstream sitcom television. Well, yeah, and it's Laura Dern that comes out to Ellen first. And it's Laura like, Dern, Ellen doesn't yes. know that she's a lesbian, and then she's like, I'm gay. And the way that Laura Dern says it is so casual mm-hmm. and the very opposite of like making a big revelation of it. Obviously, it is a revelation for Ellen in this episode, but I liked that there was also another coming out that was acknowledged that like not every time you say that is something that's broadcast to the world. And it's also not always something that's monumental every time you do it. Right. It's not like Like some life shift She was like, oh, I thought you knew this. Like, this is not that big of a deal. And I really liked that it it showed both sides of that. I have to say, like, Laura Dern (laughs) is the best. (laughs) Laura Dern is the best, and I'm glad you said that. Yeah. I do remember watching this episode. I don't... Just as a pop cultural event, I... I don't think that anything about it really resonated with me at the time. Uh, maybe it did, and I just don't remember, but I just remember it as this, like, huge deal. Like, I was honestly surprised that it was only two weeks of build-up from the cover to the episode, because I remember it being, like, the biggest media thing ever, huge, basically. Huge, huge. Going back to her show, you know, they, they got hate mail, and her show got canceled, and she tried doing the Ellen show on CBS. It didn't really do that well, and the Ellen DeGeneres daytime talk show is a enormous hit. I think it's like season 15 now. Um, I mean, she's like got to be a gazillionaire by now. Oh, yeah. Um, but so I worked on the show. And so I, you know, you want to know about the show you're working on. And actually season one, like it was kind of a miracle that she got on TV anyway. And there were some stations that still refused to show the show because she's a lesbian. Like, and that was 15 years ago. And yeah. they, and it was still, people were still completely um, uh, homophobic and advertisers wouldn't advertise. And it was really, you know, not a a sure thing right from the beginning. Um, And over time, people got more comfortable and, you know, the times have changed. And she's like the most, you know, well-liked, respected, like, person. Like, she just got the Medal of Honor, like, last year when Obama was still in office. And, yeah, it's just, like, amazing that these things, it's little baby steps, the whole time. Like, it, it took baby steps for her to come out, even though the show got canceled and things were still looking bad. Like, her career was kind of dead for a while. Yeah, it was. Like, the so the next season of the show, I was reading about it, and it really went into, like, her 
gay lifestyle. Like, it didn't just do this episode and then back out of it. Like, the next episode after this one to end season four was she comes out to her parents and then she gets fired from her job. And so it really kind of tackled these things head on, which I think is the reason that it got canceled is people just... It was weren't quite ready it, yeah. to relate to that story. It got story. a bit too real. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I haven't watched those episodes again, so I don't know how they hold up. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was definitely not something that she did, you know, lightly and then walked back. Like, she committed to it and said, I'm going to tell this story. And I think even doing the next season of the show was pretty brave, too, to, like, as, as to come back after all of this controversy and just be like, yep, we're still going to just, like go down this road and show what this character would go through is I think that that was important. And for her to come back as a daytime talk show host, I think is such a, I mean, I know that there's far from a resolved conflict. You know, there are still many people that have an issue with uh, gay people, but to, to the extent that she is such just a household name and most people I don't think really think about her sexuality anymore it's just kind of she's like a she's someone that you see on tv and she's Mm -hmm. kind of just like everyone else and the fact that over her career in the last 20 years that it could go from needing an entire magazine cover and a huge television event to go from something that people don't even really mention that much anymore is pretty pretty remarkable I think Well, and it's also, like, that was still a time where it was remarkable that even a relatively mainstream, completely inoffensive in every way kind of person, like, the idea that it would be controversial that she would come out seems almost shocking now. It does, yeah. But only in light of how much progress has been made and how much the kind of collective um, conception of queerness has shifted and how much it's been mainstreamed. And it's funny because I feel like there are a lot of social issues that have not moved that quickly. So it is right. shocking that that one has. Yes. Like, I, specifically, I'm thinking, like, if, if Ellen had been a black lesbian comedian, how much longer it would have taken, or if she would have ever gotten a show, or if she would have ever come out on that show. You know, like, it's... That it's, would have, yeah, added, like, an extra prong to the whole... <laughs> Exactly. It's like she occupied a very specific space in our culture. And I think it's, if anything, I think it means more credit to her for knowing that, at least in that moment, like she had the opportunity to play a very important role in uh, very quickly advancing visibility for gay performers in things and also gay performers being gay characters in things. So on a final note, I would just like to thank my experience of watching Ellen again for reminding me that women sing moaning transitions between commercial breaks was a definite thing in the 90s. So Wait, what? Do you guys not notice the... I'm sorry? Between, like, every scene they do, like, an establishing oh, shot, like, and then there's a woman like, do-do-do-do, yeah. I didn't really notice, to be honest. No, I'm sorry. I was too stuck on the 90s hair to notice the 90s vocal transitions. Well, I noticed both of them. Ellen will continue in a moment. We're on ABC. 
The 90s started with homosexuality no longer being considered an illness by the World Health Organization and ended with Will and Grace on the air. So obviously, like, there was, as we just talked about, change over this decade. And I think Ellen had a lot to do with it. And I think, for me at least, I kind of see it, and you guys might not agree because you like the birdcage a lot more than I do, but going from something where gay characters were still pretty broad and often had to be dressed as women or very campy in order to be accepted by mainstream audiences to characters who were more... Everyday folk. Everyday folk, yeah. So see, I see it very differently, which is that I see Hollywood as always a lagging indicator of where the public is Mm -hmm. versus a leader of any sort. I think that the... Because what happened in over the 80s and 90s was a profound and... Uh, long-lasting shift in public consciousness of the existence of queer people, again, like we were talking about, like, in and among their own lives. And I think that the pop culture was only, in at most, a reflection of that and happened kind of long after the fact. I think, but I do think that the 90s was clearly one of those times where that shift became very public and very obvious. But I don't want to give corporate entertainment too much credit for I think that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up because I do think that the legwork of all of this was really done by people decades before this who had to fight for rights and did a lot of fighting politically. So it definitely wasn't just a TV show that changed everyone's attitudes. It was kind of in the news, but it was something that a lot of people could ignore. And Ellen was kind of the point where it no longer could be ignored because it became such a big thing. And that was maybe the difference. These are characters that people had to go on this journey with and had not already arrived at this point that was not super relatable for a lot of people, where they would just be watching, you know, Nathan Lane acting funny and be like, haha, that's funny, but that has nothing to do with it. Tu Wong Fu was a a hit before The Birdcage, but it was drag queens mm-hmm. and they were already drag queens you didn't see them discovering becoming drag queens yeah, and that's what and these movies ellen and in and out are kind of about discovering that yeah it forced people to actually think about what it means to come out and discover that you're gay and have people react to it rather than just having it be like a party where everyone's you know hilarious and in great costumes like that's kind of how I know that the birdcage did have some context of people not accepting it, but I still, I feel like there's an extra level when you go through the journey with the character and actually have to identify with someone. And especially in Ellen's case, she actually is a gay person and people had to reconcile with that. So what is your guys' history with in and out Did you guys see it at the time? No. Cool. <laughs> so you watched it for the first time for this podcast? The very first time. So this was one of my favorite movies of all time when it came out. I had never laughed so hard in my life than seeing this movie in the movie theater. I bought it on VHS, watched it all the time, like introduced people to it. I was obsessed with this movie, obsessed with it. I thought it was, I loved that it was about Hollywood, (laughs) which I loved uh, in 1997, I was 14. Like I already knew I wanted to like move to LA and- Mm -hmm you know, make movies and do all that. I loved the Oscars, um, which is a big part of this movie. Um, I loved absolutely everything about it. I kind of thought I was going to be Joan Cusack's character when I grew up and marry a gay man. And like, then a movie star? Like, so I, like, related to her character. Mm. Again, uh, surprising you didn't. No, I didn't, no. Um, I loved this movie so much. And 
here's another side note that is like kind of related to this movie. So there was a magazine that I read a lot of when I was a teenager and wanted to be in movies and it was Premiere Magazine. And I have oh, a, I have yeah. a, uh, I'm assuming Chris that you were I very did familiar. Have a pers- <laughs> <laughs> For me it was like a medication. <laughs> Okay, read two issues of Premier Magazine. <laughs> Call me in the morning. <laughs> yes, I had a I had a subscription as well, or I just bought it where you know once a month. I think it was a monthly magazine. I believe you're correct. Yeah, um, I obviously loved Entertainment Weekly, but I loved Premier, and there was a columnist in Premier, uh, Libby Gelman Waxner. <laughs> she had a column called "If You Ask Me," and it was always um, like about kind of t- she would talk about her husband and her kids um but in relation to the movies that were out that month mm-hmm. um oh, like maybe. she would she would pick like two movies and like do something talking about her kids it was hilarious i loved it, it was and very I, sassy and funny yeah. And, yeah when i was in high school taking a journalism class one of the uh assignments was to bring in articles of a writer that you like like a journalistic writer and i immediately thought of libby gelman waxner and I loved that she was a funny woman. And I brought, I remember bringing in the article, like from Premiere Magazine, like I tore it out. And I was just like, I really loved reading her column. Then I found out <laughs> that there is no Libby Gelman Waxner. It is Paul Rudnick, the screenwriter of In N Out. What? Yeah. And I was so <gasps> mad and sad and like disappointed and angry. And Libby, like, <laughs> I am disappointed in you most of all. Like, I'm not like, I was just disappointed. I wanted to... You had a role model, and then it was revealed to be kind of a lie. Yeah. Yeah. I guess he was writing as a character. I don't know. I just, like, I was, like, kind of, like, pissed off that I did... There was no indication that that writer was not a woman with a... Maybe I thought she was exaggerating, like, stuff that happened to her kids and husband, but there is no kids and husband, because, I don't know. So it just made me mad. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, I don't know. I still... I, I, I guess it also made me mad because I love... In and out growing up, and I just it made me mad that like part of that was a lie or something. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, yes, I'm very familiar with it. So basically, out. your most traumatizing coming out story is Libby <laughs> coming out to you as a gay man. <laughs> no, Libby coming out is non-existent. I also have a magazine-related <laughs> connection to this movie. <laughs> I didn't expect that to be that funny, but it was Entertainment Weekly, and it's a little bit less tragic than <laughs> Becky's magazine story. And a little bit more often. Oh, because it's a weekly periodical? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, see, that <laughs> Silent pause. went way over my head. So I just remember Entertainment Weekly loving this movie, and pretty much anything Entertainment Weekly loved, I felt the need to go check out. I trusted them as a sturdy news source, <laughs> Weekly. And so I did not see this in theaters, but I was very aware of it and saw it on video. That's that's my story. I saw it on video. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I think I liked the movie, but I didn't remember hardly anything about it. I remember mostly sort of the coverage of the movie. The movie was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Joan Cusack, mm-hmm. who is up with uh, Gloria Stewart, Mini Driver, Julianne Moore, and Kim Basinger. So. Oh, Kim Basinger won for yeah. LA Confidential. So I remember kind of that this is a slight, not a huge pop cultural phenomenon, but Entertainment Weekly, I think, trumped it up as a little bit bigger than it really was. So that's my main association with this movie is not even anything particularly to do with the movie. I I watched it and I think enjoyed it and mostly forgot about it. It didn't make a big impact on me. This was one of those movies, again, where I had it on VHS 
but I moved to DVDs and I just never ended up buying on DVD. And it just like, that's why it's been like over a decade, 15 years, 20 years since I've watched it. Well, I just bought it on DVD for this podcast so I could watch it and it was $3. So <laughs> can I have it? Can you just up. give it to me? Yeah. Give me $3. <laughs> So the movie uh, cost $35 million to make. It came out on September 19th, 1997. Came out, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it grossed uh, $63.9 million. So pretty pretty solid. And its Metacritic score was a 70, so it was mostly liked. Uh, Lisa Schwartzbaum of Entertainment Weekly said, <laughs> In and Out proves that a comedy about homosexuals doesn't need to be loud to be proud. It just needs to be funny, and the mainstream will follow it anywhere. A minus. Hmm. Uh, one of the more negative reviews is from Empire. Darren Big Now <laughs> says, I don't know, that's funny. <laughs> more like Darren Big Then. <laughs> Far too light and reliant on the Hollywood romantic cliche to explore its topic intelligently and appropriately enough, leaves Klein looking like a Muppet. Hmm. That hmm. is a reference to director Frank Oz, I believe. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> but still uh, kind of a weird <laughs> reference, I think. So what did you guys think of this movie now, watching it? Well, you had never seen it, Seth, and you had not seen it in years and years. I love this movie so much. Can we take it again where you're a little bit more sure of yourself? I love (laughs) this movie so much. Still. And I I was surprised how much I remembered. Like, I guess I was also kind of watching it with fresh eyes. I think it's the funniest movie still. Still. Like, maybe it's not so, like necessary anymore because we're kind of beyond the uh need to see coming out stories being told but i think at the time it was like a step that we did need but still comedically i love every single line in this movie and like character and scene i'll go next (laughs) i love this movie so much (laughs) unlike becky i did not remember very much of this when i was re-watching it i was very surprised at how funny so much of it was and how there are a lot of cliches in this movie but they're done in a really clever way that i mean honestly like this movie had me from the fake oscars telecast the whole premise of this movie is because tom hanks won an oscar for philadelphia playing a gay man and he thanked his acting teacher which i don't think he named him by name in the speech Mm -hmm. but then it became a news story it's like oh he outed his teacher And that's where the premise of this movie comes from. Yeah, I would happily have just watched the three-hour fake Academy Awards (laughs) telecast of this because I was, like, riveted. I was like, ooh, Codger and Coot. Like, the the movies that the other... Snowball in hell. Yeah. It's a... I think it's probably... Look, honestly... We're going to have very different opinions about the overall success of this film as it's made. But one of the main notes that I wrote down was that if this was, like, a two-hour parody of Oscar telecasts (laughs) and the film award culture, I would have loved it from the start. It was Coot, Codger, Primary Urges, and Snowball in Hell. No, honestly, they were so funny. (laughs) No, those moments I loved. I loved. So again, I had no previous connection with this movie, watching it with somewhat fresh eyes. The first movie directed by Frank Oz that I've ever earnestly and openly hated. Oh my god! <laughs> Seth just came out as a terrible person. <laughs> Why I don't. You hate I don't it? think that's coming out. I don't think that's news to anyone. That's true. Um, hated. I don't hate. I mean, I know it. that we just had this 
conversation in a very opposite way with the bird cage. Audience, I am the only sane person here. I think in and out is miles and worlds and other big things away. Why did you hate it? Yes, please tell. <laughs> Let me count the ways. <laughs> Zero. It took so long for me to find anything funny in this. Oh my god! Like it literally oh. took. You until just said you liked the Oscar scene in it. That is was it- the first moment that I found funny. That's the beginning of the movie. No, there's like seven minutes of setup and exposition and there's the moment where because he's the coach of something some team of, of some sport. Doesn't matter. Basketball? It doesn't matter. And then they're gonna like get him drunk and they like spray bottles of champagne on him. Yeah. You I mean yes they would be expelled for that in, but this is a small town. You didn't laugh at Bridal barn, we salute you. <laughs> that was like the first three minutes. <laughs> the first line that I found very memorable was uh, Lauren Ambrose, six feet under, who plays one of his students, saying, Aren't you incredibly embarrassed? Don't you just want to stick a grenade in your mouth? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what? Are you saying that that's a bad line? Yes. Like, everything about gay identity in this movie characterizes being gay as negative. Not even just being judgmental of femme behavior. The idea of being gay is seen as such an insult and an affront to decency in this movie. So that that's like one of my issues with this. But that's the attitude of some characters in the movie. I don't feel like that's the attitude of the that's movie. The, that's that's also- the attitude of Kevin Klein toward hom- homosexuality. Through the entirety of this movie, he sees it as the worst possible thing that you could be. And I think that's very true of a lot of people who, a lot of people don't want to come out because they're very ashamed of what they are because they have been told that it's wrong and they know that society will perceive them negatively from it. And I think that's very accurate to what a lot of people feel when they're going through this situation. This movie is a satire of society. Like, Mm -hmm. it's a full-on satire. Every single person in this movie that misunderstands gayness or is scared by it or is threatened by it is, like, you're supposed to think they're stupid. Like, the guy who says they're in holes and out holes. Like, you're supposed to think these people are idiots. Yeah, because you can easily, like, poke... And they even do in the movie. They poke a hole in that theory because then they're like, well, what about a mouth? That's both an in-hole and an out-hole. Like, that theory doesn't make any but, sense, but, but it's but the joke's on him. This, I don't think this movie makes a joke of the myths that it sets up. I don't think it ultimately knocks down macho culture or masculinity or patriarchy. Like, it, pre- it still presents those things as what you should aspire to. It's like Kevin Klein still has that whole sequence where he's like taunted by this kind of magical omniscient narrator. He's supposedly playing a tape with like yeah. manliness lessons, but it's kind of almost like a confrontation with a with a god-like figure yeah. who's like judging him for not being manly enough. Yeah, but then he is by the end of that scene, he's like trying to be manlier, but it's just not who he is. And he's like dancing in joy. That's like the pivotal moment of the movie where he kind of like says, I'm not going to try and be someone else and yeah, be that, who like, I I'm going to be myself. 
And also just the whole town loves him. And the whole, I think it's important to note that it's when just one person says you are gay, he's absolutely not changed at all. And that's when everybody is like, ooh, like, because they're not scared of femininity. It's just the word gay. When he has his bachelor party and all of the people are like, oh, we're going to watch Funny Girl and Barbara Streisand movies because that's what you love to do. And like we we know you're not gay but yeah funny like funny girl like they're not scared of that's gay was, things they're just scared of that word yeah that's what i was trying to say about the clichés earlier is that like it's a big cliche and it would be a cliche if it was just like oh kevin klein's character likes Barbara Streisand but the fact that all these other guys get into it and they start having a fight over like which Barbara Streisand movie is their favorite is i think that's like a really clever way to show that and and I, it makes me kind of disagree completely that this movie says uh, macho ness is the like right way to go because all of these guys are arguing about Yentl and you know and are not afraid to say that they like Barbara Streisand. It it's it's like Becky's saying it's only this label that they're afraid of and. I think they, the the characters in this movie genuinely believe him when he says that he's not gay. Like, they're all, like, shocked that he's outed, and then he's like, I'm not gay. And they're like, oh, thank God. Phew. Great. But it's really just that. It's not that they are afraid of anything specific. It's just this word that just has this kind of, like, scarlet letter kind of right, connotation. Prissy? Well, not in a bad way. I'm... I mean, like, you're smart and well-dressed. And really clean. Doesn't look good. Plus, you got the drama club, and you ride that bicycle. (laughs) You've been engaged to Miss Montgomery for, like, three years? What what does that have to... I mean, think about it. If you add it up, of course the guy thinks you're gay. Oh, oh, oh! And plus, he was in that movie. So his brain is like already going that way. And then he remembers you and he goes smart, clean, totally decent human being. Gay. Gays in the space program. Lesbians on Mars? You have any comments? Right, but you're you're leading right into where the real crux of my disagreement is here, which is Kevin Klein's character. I don't believe that portrayal of homosexuality um, at all. I don't believe it in the writing. I don't believe it in the performance. I see this as a movie where Kevin Klein's character kind of becomes gay only by declaration. He doesn't have any attraction at all until Tom Selleck sexually assaults him, basically. I don't see his coming out process as authentic at any single level. I wondered how much of my love for the birdcage came from having seen it a while ago. I wonder if I had seen in and out earlier, if I would have loved it a lot more. I saw this movie as actually really insulting and patronizing. I, I thought of his character as just completely inauthentic because I didn't feel like Kevin Klein's character had ever struggled with those feelings at any point in his life. This seemed like a movie where a character became gay, like, by declaration, and that, like, as soon as he did it, like, the whole world opened up for him and everything was perfect. This movie felt very surprisingly insulting to me. How is this different from Ellen just coming out in that one episode? Because it's not like they were toying with 
that throughout, you know, that season on Ellen, it was just that episode where she has feelings for a woman and she comes out almost like against her will because Susan, Laura Dern, is the one that like says she's gay first and says, oh, I thought you were. And how is in and out for you different than that? It made me kind of realize a more general thing. I, I feel like every character in in and out is just profoundly cynical. Kevin Klein's character isn't the only repressed person. Like, every no. character in this movie is repressed and yeah. really cynical. And it's about people who are so, like, disconnected from their authentic emotional selves that, like, any moment of real affection or truth-telling that they have risks upending, like, their entire lives and completely destroying their entire lives. Yeah, but that's kind of what the movie is about, is that it's about these small-town places and kind of a small-town mindset where you have to really abide by a really narrow set of standards and... I love the scene in this movie where the old ladies are sitting around talking and revealing truths about themselves. Like, I loved that this movie Mm -hmm. took a moment to kind of relate their experience. Even Like, it it really honestly doesn't have that much to do with being gay. It's that there's a shocking secret or, like, a supposedly shocking secret that's actually not that shocking. It's just, like, this guy's a human being who has a slightly different, you know, experience than you do. And these other characters start realizing things about themselves and say, like, oh, hey, like, maybe I can tell you that I've been stealing someone's recipe all this time. And that these characters find, and and then in the climax, you know, when they all kind of say that they're gay in order to show that that's not such a, a bad thing that... It's not a bad thing to be gay. They're saying, I'm gay, when the whole time the label of gay has been something scary and threatening. And at by the end of the movie, the town has realized, you know what, I'll say that I'm gay because actually I am not scared See, of it anymore. I didn't like that. I really did not like that either because, and I mean, part of it is just that this was created a while ago. And that the concept of allyship was not a thing that was more cemented back then. Um, But I don't like that they uh, took the invocation of being gay as some kind of affectation. Because much like like it would be if a white person said, oh, well, I'm a black person. Rather than like saying like Black Lives Matter, for instance. Like... Gayness is not a thing that you can put on and take off. Like, it is not a thing that you can, like, remove from yourself. Um, well, the reason they did that in the movie is because the they were saying, like, oh, if you're around a gay person, then you might be gay. And so all of them were saying, oh, I guess I'm around a gay person. I guess I'm gay. But that's not a bad thing. You know, they're kind of being sarcastic about it. But they're not, that's not... It's they're they're making fun of the idea that you could catch gayness. Yeah, they're the fact that someone could suddenly become gay in that way is what they're making fun of. It's not that they're like they're not they're making fun of the fact that it's offensive that you could think that not being offensive themselves, I guess. Yeah, no, I I too wish that the scene with June Squibb and Debbie Reynolds uh, laughing, oh, that was June Squibb. Yeah. Laughing, <laughs> laughing their old tits off about a guy with three balls. Uh, I do wish that had been the whole movie as well. Um, again, there are sequences and scenes in this movie that are absolutely hilarious. Can I say the line, and I think it's his brother who says it, like, they're kicking him out? That's not fair. I mean, he killed people. 
Yeah. <laughs> that Again, movie. I, I wrote that Cameron down. Cameron Drake. I wrote that down, but not in an approving way. <laughs> because it's like the idea that... But that's a joke. That's why it's funny. That it's like... <laughs> no, I know it's a joke, but the reason... The idea that it's okay to be gay because you have killed people for your country. That's the joke that people... That's the joke. I know. And again, like, I am i didn't watch this when it first came out, so I'm watching this through 2017 eyes. But so was I, because I barely remembered a thing about this movie. Okay. I was coming almost completely I just wonder if this. you didn't really cotton on to, like, the satire of it. Like, every single person in this movie is being, like, a, it's almost like a stock character being satirized. That's how I'm watching it. That's why I think it's hilarious yeah and i think that uh, to me like the kind of comedic centerpiece of the movie is that tape scene which i think it is so heightened and it's obviously like it can't like that would never happen that way because the tape is way too into what he's exactly doing but that's the joke of the movie and i think what's so great about this movie is that like it didn't have to be the oscars that's a funny thing but it's it's not necessary to the plot. Like, he could have been outed in a much, like, smaller way. But the fact that it's a nationwide story and, like, there are reporters flocking, like, that is how you feel when you're coming out. Like, you feel like everyone is talking about you, everyone is looking at you, and and they are. They're asking, like, personal questions and they're shouting, like, misconceptions at you. Like, even though that's not... 100% literally what happens is that's kind of how you feel because everyone is suddenly like making this big deal over something that to you shouldn't be that big of a deal. It's just an aspect of who you are. So I really liked that this movie represented that in a comedic way and made it funny, like really funny. I love that this movie really is like pro-gay. Like, for example, this line, his student says like why people just assumed he was gay. Um, like, all the things that make him gay are positive things. Smart, clean, totally decent human being, gay. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's like saying that it's a good stereotype that all Asians are good at math. Stereotypes can still be rendered in a positive fashion and be reductive and generalizing about how minorities actually are in reality. But it's making fun of the perception of these things. I and- don't think it's making fun of those things. I think it's presenting them... I don't think it's mocking them. Like, I don't... I There's nothing about it to me that says that that's wrong. Like, it is very vivid in the way that it presents them. But I don't think there's anything to me that satirizes it to the point that you can tell these things are incorrect opinions about the way that gay people are. I think the whole movie... There is- it's pretty obvious that their opinions are incorrect because they're so funny. Like, it's obviously just making fun of the attitudes that people have and that but even when it's funny i think the image of gayness that's presented in this movie is one where gay men inherently cannot be masculine but what about tom selleck he's masculine you don't even know that he's gay or you have even an inkling of it the whole time until he's like i'm gay I think he's like another, you know, counterpoint how I felt about Robin Williams and Nathan Lane in the Birdcage. I am cage completely that flummoxed how you can make that comment after defending the Birdcage. <laughs> Kevin Klein's character is not super flaming. He's a little bit on the stereotypical feminine side. 
Um, you know, uh, all the things the that they say. Typical gay side. Okay, he's a but like, sand but Tom, freak. He's... But Tom Selleck isn't at all. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> he's like a Tom of Finland drawing, but sure. Okay, but he's not. It's not presenting only one type of gayness, and it's not saying every gay guy is like you because here's this other gay guy over here that is very comfortable being gay, and he just says it. No, like on, on Kevin Klein's character, my only point is that the accurately drawn version of that character would have more struggle with these ideas before. What st- what struck out to me as unrealistic about Kevin Klein's character in particular is that. It doesn't seem to have ever crossed his mind that he was ever attracted to men until Tom Selleck grabs him and kisses him. Maybe it wasn't. That can be a thing. Like, people go through Anson. years of their lives without realizing that, and often... That long in their lives. Yes. Without even an inkling of it. But that's not... It's everyone's repression. story is different. It's, they might... But repression is like a struggle. That is, like, it's... There are moments that you struggle against, and like you were talking about earlier, like in terms of coming out, there are levels of coming to awareness of being gay and of specifically not being straight, whatever whatever form that takes. But there are a lot of people who never even get to those first levels and live their entire lives married to a woman that they don't really love and don't even ever admit to themselves that the reason that that's not working out is because they're gay. Like there are a lot of people who spend their entire lives like in the, in the situation that Kevin Klein is in, in the beginning of this movie. I think that's true. And I think that's what makes uh, Joan Cusack's character. So especially sad for me. Um, it's uh, I, it didn't work as well comedically for me, but I was actually like really touched by <laughs> Joan Cusack's character mm-hmm. um, because I mean she very literally bases her dreams for her life around getting married and finding yeah. the right man to settle down with. Was there oh any other time you might have told me this? I'm wearing a wedding dress, which you picked out! I, I, I highlighted my hair because you said I needed shimmer. I, I loved you and, and believed you and, and pretended not to notice the Streisand thing. I thought, I thought you were just creative. I thought you were just smarter than me and more sensitive and more interesting. I, I thought you were the most wonderful man who ever lived. I, I thought you could just change my life and and show me the whole world and teach me about art and life and, and magic and I thought you could make me feel like a beautiful woman instead of the girl nobody wanted. Oh no. Emily. <gasps> Emily. Emily. Does anybody here know how many times I've had to watch Funny Lady? It's so it's not even really about him. It's about her and her issues of of what if she's deserving of love, um, because it seems like maybe she let some things go in issues in the relationship because she just wanted to get married and feel like somebody loves me. Yeah, I think it's a critique also of 
of that and of going after whatever small town guy happens to want you because he was the only guy who asked her and you know that is shown to be wrong too all of these things that people kind of do automatically in these communities where they don't have the freedom to express themselves really and, and are not encouraged to live outside of norms so they just kind of do what everyone has told them to and through one character's kind of extreme circumstance which honestly like I feel like a very similar movie could have been made and it wouldn't even necessarily have been like anything to do with him coming out about all these people kind of questioning their assumptions and the lives that they've led and the kind of prejudices that they're taught to have and actually like really looking at the situation and saying you know what even though I know that that word is supposed to be a bad thing I see this person in front of me who is actually like a really great guy and I liked him two weeks ago before I knew he was gay and now I guess I should still like him because that doesn't make sense just to demonize him for this one thing. I also feel like it's very possible that Kevin Klein's character had never met a gay person before. Yeah. And so how would he have even had that experience to to see that in himself if he had never been around No, it wasn't even that. It was that it's not presented as a struggle. It's literally, it's presented as a, a... deus ex machina it's like the the hand of god comes down and swats him in the face with the fact that he's gay like and he instantly comes to terms with it and instantly knows that that's what it means like there's no moment of struggle within his character my problem is just that there the way that it's told in the story is an exterior circumstance that happens to him you mean so, versus him one day after school, a new teacher is hired and he's handsome and they click. And and that being the or a instigating subplot force? with, like, now that this guy won an Oscar and said his name at the ceremony, they have something together. Like, who knows? Like, there are other ways to do this. It just felt, it didn't feel organic to me that his character turns out to actually be gay. Like, it, that part of it just doesn't feel organic to me. It doesn't ring true that the way that that story is set up with uh, the Tom Selleck character, it doesn't feel like it's organic to those characters and what they want and what what they're going for. I mean, this movie definitely goes pretty light on any romance, although I think it does at least make a kind of a bold choice to have them kiss which yeah, was not like which is more than like ellen did you know in that episode it was and it's a long gay kiss and it's i mean it's very funny but it's also still a kiss at the time when this was not a regular thing that you right, saw and that's more than the birdcage really did and i mean i feel like both movies really like lighten the amount of intimacy you actually see between men or struggle with actual like sexual feelings and that was the time but i i think there are moments of real intimacy in the birdcage between robin williams and nathan lane and there aren't like french kissing makeout kisses but there are like really subtle kisses that are very intimate and sweet between them. Yeah, there's like they're holding each other's hands. Yeah. There is a moment in this movie where at the end of the film, Wilfred Brimley and Debbie Reynolds, who are Kevin Klein's parents in this movie, renew their vows. And I think that was another moment where they had to reassert that heteronormative relationships are the good thing. So they like renew their vows and have a straight wedding. You mean like how the ended on a straight wedding as well? Well, but I'm saying like, I was, I was, I was connecting that. sorry. No, no, I'm not, I'm not 
being hypocritical, I'm saying that like that that critique holds here as well. Okay. I I I feel like that was supposed to just be a reveal. Like you're thinking, oh, they're getting married, but they're not. Like it was just supposed to be a like a a switch. Like oh, it's not Howard and Tom Selleck's character. It's because yeah. they like they like reveal. Uh, Wilford Brimley and Debbie Reynolds like what an unusual couple you know like <laughs> I'm just like I feel like that was supposed to just be like a little joke yeah I will say I don't love that ending either I just don't think it has aged that well that it's like ooh shocking like it's not the men getting married it's them but I did think about it and it was like the whole th- thing driving Howard to want to get married in this movie is that his mom wants it so desperately so I think it does kind of make sense that she would, instead of say, oh, I need to live through my son, just be like, hey, I can get married again. Like, I can have this wedding for myself. And I think it goes toward the whole, like, do things a little more unconventionally. Like, you don't have to do everything by the book. You don't have to live through other people. Or, yeah, don't do something because you of other people's expectations. Because I didn't feel like he even wanted to be married. It felt like his mom really wanted it. Yeah, this woman in his life really wanted it. Yeah, and that's why that's him shedding that and it's the movie is about him and other people not allowing other people's expectations to dictate your life but again i feel like tom Selleck kisses him and that's that's tom Selleck imposing his expectations on him again i don't think i don't see him breaking free of that in this movie that may happen afterward that may happen in the process of him like determining what it is that like turns him on or interests him or whatever but he feels so repressed in this movie and every change that he makes in his life is only what happens when someone else demands something of him and someone else either has some design that they want him to go along with in terms of Joan Cusack and the wedding or someone else wants to make a move on him and knock on him like Tom Selleck does. I ultimately don't know if I can say that if I had seen this when I was younger, I wouldn't feel entirely different about this, because I totally might. I think it goes beyond when you saw it, because like I, like I said, I saw it more recently, but I, I do think that our affinity and hatred... I don't hate the birdcage. I think it's funny, but our affinity and hatred for these very opposite movies just kind of speaks to kind of our personal experiences and how we personally experienced our sexuality and that I identify way more with in and out and I think you identify more with The Birdcage. And I identify with both. <laughs> <laughs> In both movies, I'm not getting laid. <laughs> Becky's pansexual. Pan-non-sexual. <laughs> I think you identify more with in and out I'm going to say yeah, that there's, there's a character in there yeah, that might I'm Joan remind Kizak, me guys. of you. I'm literally in the wedding dress eating peanuts at the bar. <laughs> Hitting on a gay man. Isn't it? But come on. Let's just talk about how funny this movie is. When she screams, is everybody gay? Looks like her delivery is so She funny. is really good in this. I mean, I think that, I don't think Seth will agree, but I think Kevin Klein is also great in yeah. this movie, and I would have loved to see him get nominated for an Oscar, too. Um, is Cameron Drake, a.k.a. Matt Dillon, supposed to be Ben Affleck and Matt Damon as the same I thought person? he was supposed to be Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> I thought he was supposed to be Matt Damon and Ben Affleck as the same person because he had the facial hair and the blonde hair, and he was saying how he's only been in two movies, and no, it just made see, me think I of, think like, Good Will Hunting. he's also a composite of, like, Brad Pitt, Leo DiCaprio, yeah. like, a lot of... I think he's all of them wrapped up. I saw Matt and Ben. 
Well, okay, but also, but also, I think it's making fun of Matt Dillon himself because he was part of the Brat Pack. Mm-hmm. So he was already part of a generation of young Hollywood it things. It things. Yeah. Things. It things. One other thing I wanted to say about this movie that I find interesting is that for about half of the movie, like the movie could still be about him being straight and being outed and having to just prove that he's not gay. And then in the end, like, I mean, whatever. But like the conflict of this movie could be a straight man who's about to get married, who then everyone thinks is gay and has to like deal with that yes no like i had that thought too it's, it's like I, I i would have felt that was much more of a genuine conflict it's ultimately like a drama that resolves itself in favor of the question of the plot which is like someone else says you're gay but i like that the movie is somewhat in denial as the character is too and the movie kind of figures out that he's gay along with him like he is we don't rare. see him in the beginning of the movie say to himself like i'm gay or, or it's not like i don't know like it's not like a known thing that he's gay and he's hiding it's not like he has like gay porn hidden <laughs> i yeah. don't know you know what I mean like it's not like he knows this thing and that he is actively in denial it really feels like he's in denial and then the movie is in denial yes like with him until the moment at his wedding when he's like i can't go on like this like it's so like i'm gay like i have to like come clean and for me personally that's something that i relate to more in the version where he has like gay porn in the first scene i'm like okay what's the conflict i guess we know that he's gay but i enjoy this I enjoy going on that process with him and being like, maybe he should marry her. Like, maybe he really does love her. And having to go through some of that turmoil. Seth's giving me crazy My looks God. right now. Like, I don't understand how anyone buys that they would ever have any chance of a relationship with each other. Like, there are, what do you I've mean? met couples like this. I know, I know so, plenty okay. of guys who but have gotten it's married. Like, it's never a question that he might be, like, asexual or whatever. Like, she is so clearly deluded in believing that this is a relationship that will bear fruit for her. So she's in denial too. Yeah. They're all in denial. That's the whole thing. It's a small town. It's making fun of the fact that everyone in this small town is kind of putting on appearances. And that's like the arc for everybody. Everybody in this movie has to be true to themselves and discover who they really are and come out with a secret like, everyone in the movie has to do that. And then everyone's happy at the end because they have. Like, the, I mean, it's very much a wish fulfillment thing, but Joan Cusack's character ends up with a gorgeous movie star, which is hilarious. But it's a, like, And he, he liked her, and it's important that he liked her when she was, like, bigger. Right. Like, he didn't need her to be someone who she wasn't, which was this thin person. But even that character starts the movie dating a supermodel because that's the kind of person that you expect a movie star to date and he also goes on this journey of oh you know what I'm gonna do not what everyone tells me I should do I'm gonna go hang out with my old teacher like my English teacher and at the end she's like eating Cheetos and we're just happy yeah because <laughs> I, I don't want her to be like this skinny thing that she's not I think she's yeah, beautiful the way she's meant to be I actually, very much about I actually really liked the scene between the two of them when they dance oh, when okay. they dance in front of the bar yeah I actually thought it was like really genuinely romantic despite you know the very taboo circumstances um Yeah, no, like, there were many things that I liked about this. Again, just fundamentally, I did not buy Kevin Klein's character, the journey he went on, the easy way that that resolved, 
Um, yeah, and I, I, yeah. Wait, are you talking about In and Out, or am I talking about the Bird Cage? <laughs> I have lost track because I literally feel like we had the exact same criticism. And I'm right for the here. I think guys, we did. I think we did. And Becky loves everything. I'm right here in the middle of these two guys. Becky's <laughs> stuck in the middle with us. I enjoyed this podcast the most because I liked Ellen episode. I liked the Bird Cage, and I loved In and Out. Um, I. I realized something during this viewing that maybe I didn't pick up You're before. Gay. I'm gay. <laughs> no, sorry, sorry, husband. Um, <laughs> what a way to come out in a podcast. He like listens to it like ten months later. Like, yeah, you have to like I've been waiting. <laughs> You're not listening to my podcast. <laughs> That's what it was really trying to figure out. Is not it doesn't matter that you're gay, but that he's not listening to your podcast and doesn't mention it. <laughs> this was a test the whole time. Um, I forget the student. Oh, his uh, Jack, his student. I kind of got the impression that maybe he was gay at the um, end. No, it's not. It's very obviously he's gay. But I, I don't think didn't it's think very it was, obvious. I didn't think it was obvious because anytime I'd watched this before, I never picked up on that subtlety. That and was I, very obvious to me. Okay. I was actually a little confused by it too. Is I didn't think that at the first time because I actually just watched it twice for doing this because I loved it so much that I wanted to see. <laughs> I it. watched it twice to see if I hated it as much as I truly did. Back to good things. Uh, yeah, and I, I think it is a little unclear. I in a lot of ways it feels like they're setting it up that way, but I think there's like room for ambiguity. Like I don't. Necessarily I, think- I wish that there it, he didn't have to say. By the way, uh, Mister Packet, uh, Miss. Bracket. bracket like i i'm gay thanks for coming out but like i felt like i just needed like a little bit more like i just wanted a little bit more to to make it clear that that he's looking at him as a role model and that he's gay and it really meant something to him to have him go through I, this i totally got it i feel like it might be more on the nose if it were made now but i don't think it needs that um, i don't know that just like that played really i i thought it was good i thought it was done really well um, and I didn't need, like, any more obvious, uh... Alright. But I did like that as a story moment. Like, there were a lot of story moments I really liked, and I thought that was done in a really subtle way. I like that Howard and Tom Selleck's character, I keep forgetting his name, um, but, like, I like that they didn't end up together. It seemed like they were, mm-hmm. like, friends at the end. And I liked that because... In real life, you don't put two gay guys together, and then they're together because they're two gay guys. Yeah, I appreciated that in both Ellen... And this is that it really would be like super convenient for that to work out. And neither of them goes that direction. I guess there's like maybe some hint that Kevin Klein and Tom Selleck could end up together or maybe, might be dating, but... but it's definitely not like a happily ever after situation. And I liked that. So I also appreciated how this movie has references to both Ellen and the birthday. How <laughs> oh, it does. <laughs> Time our nice little topic all together. Mm hmm. What does he say? He's like, no, I have not seen the birdcage. I'm trying to eat my dinner, yes. <laughs> Do you know Ellen? <laughs> and there's like this other throwaway line where they're just like shouting out like, what do you think about gays in space? And then this woman shouts out, lesbians on Mars! I just like, there's so many like little lines like that that are just hilarious, I yeah. think, in this movie. So, go see it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not uh, theaters, listen- Chris! If you're listening to this 20 years ago, go to the theater. <laughs> Becky, be fair. Chris didn't say specifically to go to theaters to see it. Go, s- go to your Netflix. <laughs> you go over to your Netflix. Go to your local you library. Go buy go the DVD it. from Amazon for $3 like I did. So like, I guess just to sum up, I mean, I feel like people should still be watching this Ellen episode in particular because I think it 
really does kind of go into something that is glossed over a lot. Like now we are pretty used to seeing gay characters in the mainstream and we it's like so widely accepted that they're gay that I guess the depiction of them is so trying to show them as normal and be like, look, they're they could be married too, or they can have sex too, that a lot of time isn't spent on some of the difficulties of coming out that a lot of people still do face. So I did kind of appreciate going back to a time where you actually had to see like how difficult this process was for people at this time, and I think still is for a lot of people. Yeah, I would say that all of everything we watched for me was like gold still. <laughs> so I would say like, it's so entertaining, but do keep in the back of your mind watching it like it's from a certain time. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't think any of these are something that you shouldn't watch. I mean, I definitely think in and out holds up really well and is still really, really kind of fresh and funny, even though some of the depictions of gay life feel a little bit restricted because it was 1997. And even The Birdcage is like literally a depiction of 1979 in 1996 because it's a remake of a movie. But even that, I think, is still like pretty entertaining, has really good performances, and is a lot of fun. It, it It's just like it's kind of a stepping stone that I think we took in the 90s to get to somewhere where like Will and Grace could be a mainstream hit and then... Modern Family today. Yeah, exactly. So I think all of these were kind of a clear stepping stone along the way. Well, and, and though we differ on the kind of individual merits of some of these, <laughs> I think it's kind of undisputed that these are all examples of, in the 90s, a very different kind of pop cultural discourse about queerness and non-heterosexual characters and relationships started to form. That's advanced really far beyond the 90s. So, of course, if you watch any of these now, you're going to have a very different set of eyes on it than someone who saw it when they first came out. But they're really interesting to visit as kind of artifacts of that time, and again, to see how how they hold up now. Next time on When We Were Young, we are going to be discussing Stephen King's It and Stephen King's Stand By Me. We're doing it. <laughs> We're doing Stand. We're buying me. <laughs> the When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studios in Los Angeles, California. Subscribe to us and rate us on iTunes. And if you want to suggest a future episode of the show and tell us something to revisit next, go to facebook.com slash show. I've been Seth Pearson. I'm gay. <laughs> I'm not gay. I love you, honey. Yep, I'm Chris. <laughs> So, how did you do, pussy boy?